You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. On this podcast, we are pleased to welcome journalist Bill Weinberg. The three of us will be discussing Noam Chomsky, Chomsky's position on the war in Ukraine, Syria, and the famous Chomsky rule. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be joined by Bill Weinberg to talk about Noam Chomsky. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current events section on May 10th, eight days ago on May 2nd of 2022. Somebody leaked a draft of a decision the Supreme Court may be handing down in a few months about the end of Roe v. Wade, the end of abortion rights in the United States. And uh, it's been, of course, what everyone's been talking about here in the U.S. for obvious reasons. So we're going to talk about that today. I can't say that anyone was completely surprised, right? Because, I mean, a lot of people, as soon as Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, we saw this coming. Uh, Maybe as soon as Trump was elected, we saw this coming. You know, who knows? People have been worried about this for a while. But there was something very real and shocking about it, too, to see this leaked draft of an opinion by Samuel Alito. But also for people to just actually read the argumentation behind it and realized what the conservatives on the Supreme Court are using for their justification for taking rights away from citizens and also thinking about what implications the same logic could have for other rights that people in the U.S. are guaranteed under the Constitution. Yeah, it's like I feel like we're living in Afghanistan. You know, they had relative freedom for a long time and then the Taliban comes back in and that's it, you know. Women are being forced back centuries, and same thing's going on in the U.S. It hasn't reached that far yet, but, you know, it took them a long time, decades, 49 years, to get to where they are overturning abortion. And this is totally unprecedented. A lot of people have pointed that out. It really bears stressing this is the first time ever that the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right or what has been judged to be a constitutional right uh, of people. That alone is ominous. I think one reason the decision shocked a lot of people is that for a very long time, the anti-choice side and the Supreme Court has been chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at abortion rights. And I think that a lot of people seem to have been expecting we would get that again, that would be a decision that said, yeah, you can make it basically impossible to get an abortion uh, after 16 weeks of pregnancy, cutting that back, you know, but this decision was like, no, you you can ban abortion altogether with no exceptions, no exceptions if the person's been raped or it's pregnant because of incest. It's just an outright denial of any privacy right uh, in this regard. Well, and some people might have even been surprised, even people who supported Trump's three Supreme Court nominees might have been surprised at the extent of this opinion, because obviously all three of them claimed in their hearings that they were not against overthrowing precedents or whatever. Um, And you had people like Susan Collins now in the past week acting all shocked that when she voted to confirm these people that they would turn around and overthrow Roe. But others of us haven't been that surprised. 
Let's go through the argumentation. I mean, the Roe v. Wade decision was based on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and uh, specifically to the Equal Protection Act, which was a Reconstruction era amendment to the Constitution, which made black Americans you know, full citizens with equal rights under the Constitution. And that has been used subsequently to extend uh, rights to other groups of people, women, gays. And now we see this argumentation by Alito, which was trying to chip away at the idea of using the 14th Amendment to extend rights to Americans. And by his logic, all these rights that have been guaranteed under the 14th Amendment over the years could be taken away from people using the same logic, even the right to you know, consensual sexual acts between adults, the right to interracial marriage. These are all things based on the same, the same amendment. But even though he says in his draft, oh, we're only going to use this logic to overturn Roe, a lot of people are saying, look, where's the line here? I don't, if this is the way the, you're interpreting the law, then all these things can be challenged. Right. And I think it's important that we highlight what the reasoning is. Uh, as far as I can make out, there are two basic points that he's resting everything on. Basically, his notion is you only have a right if it explicitly says that in the text of the Constitution. And so there's no line in the Constitution, people have a legal right to an abortion. It doesn't say it that way. So that right does not exist. And the only other way that you could say that a right exists is if it's deeply rooted in the, the country's history and traditions, which basically means we on the court in some interpretation of what the right wing wants, which is what the bow to traditions means, we will say that there is a right if and when we think that it's a conservative enough right. <laughs> but we're not going to have any progress. The only way to have any progress, any expansion of rights is you'd have to like write everything in word by word uh, in, into some amendments to the Constitution. Maybe you could uh, have Congress pass a law, but God knows, you know, they're prepared to say all kinds of uh, laws are unconstitutional. So basically what he has done, Alito, and the others that go along with him is to, in principle, remove all rights from people except those that are explicitly detailed in the Constitution or that have been there in the traditions of the country as interpreted by the Supreme Court and their really, you know, reactionary understanding of the traditions of the country. Right. And just so people are clear, or maybe aren't U.S. listeners, we're talking about a Constitution that was, which only gave uh, full citizenship rights to white men who own property. Right. Well, we got an explicit amendment, 13, 14, 15 amendment that kind of undoes that to some extent. Right. But yeah, women couldn't vote when the 14th Amendment was passed, right? Women were not, didn't have full citizenship rights. There, there, was, there wasn't even, for men, there wasn't universal suffrage. And they're really close to saying that the states can do whatever they want in terms of uh, conducting votes. Because, because that, the Constitution doesn't say otherwise, you know? Some of these concerns I heard summed up very well last week uh, at a local radio station. Solomon Jones is a local black intellectual and radio personality here in Philadelphia. And the day after this opinion was leaked, I heard him on the radio and he said, every time you hear them talk about states' rights and the original intent of the Constitution, just know that 
they're talking about taking rights away from us. And he was talking about, you know, black people here in the States. Um, they're coming for, for you when you hear this, is, you know, what he was saying, which I thought was a, a good way of putting this because I think in the first day or two afterwards, everything was focused on just taking away the right to abortion, which obviously is a big deal. But, you know, he was trying to impress upon his audience right away that this is way bigger than this. They're going to come for the, all sorts of people whose, whose rights are whose rights are under threat by this this conservative mentality that is only going to appeal to, like, the most reactionary parts of U.S. history to legitimize senses of, of, of right in this country. Yeah, I think that's that's quite correct, which is not to say that there's no racism involved in the abortion decision. But yeah, it, we're definitely not seeing the end. Uh, we're seeing only the beginning. And I think what is going to be scaring a lot of people is your middle, upper middle class people said, oh, well, it's only them that they're going to restrict the right of abortion to. Not, not people like us, because, you know, hello, there's states that allow abortion and we can afford to fly our daughter to those places and stay in a hotel and take off a week and then come back. We have the knowledge and, and, and stuff to, to do that. But now the right wing, you know, is all energized and they're talking about a nationwide ban on abortion. So the only way, you know, you'd have to leave the country, and that's just not feasible for that that many people. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. So there might be more pushback unless these people can tamp down what they're driving for, at least in an immediate sense. I think people are starting to, I've, I've started to hear it more than I used to, starting to realize that we're, we're facing an enemy with whom there is no compromise. They can only be defeated. They will stop at nothing. Their goal is maximal power. And if they need to impose theocracy, because that's what a lot of their base wants, that's where they're driving toward. There are no moderating forces left, you know, in the Republican Party. No, they're completely gone. I mean, the, you, you can only win an election by being the crazy, so the crazy. Right. And that, that just ratchets up more and more and more. It's not accidental that it ratchets up more and more. This is what you need to do to demonstrate undying loyalty to Donald Trump and that you are really the most MAGA of the MAGA. And so the claims, the falsehoods, the demands just get worse and worse and worse and worse. That's another reason why they're not going to be satisfied with what they're getting right now. Ever since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, there have been more people talking about packing the Supreme Court and other sort of tactics like that to change the balance of power on the court. But it seems like we don't have enough of a majority in the Senate to do that. And we're running out of time. So at this point, I don't know, what do you think, Andrew? What, where's our hope in this? One thing that is hopeful is that the American people, until very recently, used to have a great deal of confidence in the Supreme Court. And now, not so much. And it's becoming a mainstream trope that it's completely politicized, the court is. It's just a, a tool of the right wing. These people have been lying to us for a very long time when they said that they would go by stare decisis or respect longstanding precedent of 49 years on abortion rights. Whatever the original decision was, it's locked in because it's been there for a long time. And again and again, the Republican uh, nominees to the court have either danced around it or said, yeah, we respect precedent and we're basically 
gave people reason to assume that they would respect precedent in this case, and they just blew that blew that off. So every, everybody is realizing that this is a complete sham. A Yahoo News YouGov poll just came out today, comparing right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in September 2020, and right after the leak came out, you originally had a year and a half ago, 70% of the population said it had a lot or some confidence in the Supreme Court. That's down to 51%. You had 30% saying they had little or no confidence, and now that's up to 50%. And that's just in the space of 20 months. And the share of the populace that said it has no confidence in the Supreme Court, which is, of course, the correct way to think about it, that went up from 7 to 26. And that's a really big jump, of course, you know, for, for such a short period of time. So to the extent that what the people care about and want matters, they're really eroding the basis of their power. The real question is, to what extent does their power anymore depend on any kind of popular legitimacy? If they're able, their side's able to win elections by rigging them, this might not matter. I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, some people are saying, well, the problem the Democrats can't act is they've got the nominal 50 votes in, in the Senate, but they got some, the Republican wing of the Democratic Party mansion and so forth, a couple people. And so what they really need is a majority of 53 because or 52, because that would give them a little cushion, and they could have 50 votes to overturn the filibuster, and that would allow them to pass a nationwide abortion protection, and that would allow them to, if necessary, enhance the Supreme Court, putting more people on it. I don't know. I mean, I really hope that what a lot of people around the Democratic Party are hoping, I hope it will come to pass that this is finally the straw that broke the camel's back and the people are now seeing this is not just a possibility in the future, the you know taking away of our rights is here and now and that people won't come into the elections with a lot of concerns about this, that, and the other, inflation and COVID, this and that. But they'll make the taking away of, of abortion rights front and center the issue. I don't know about that. I have great doubts that the, the Democratic Party can even make that front and center the issue in its own publicity. Because they're so every, every which way. Can't say the battle is lost forever, right? There's still means of fighting back. But I don't think that there's in any easy way out of this. It's going to be a very, very long, protracted struggle. Well, that's all the time we have for this discussion. I'm sure we'll return to this topic more in future episodes. Up next, our conversation with Bill Weinberg about Noam Chomsky. We are recording this podcast on May 9th, and we are very pleased to welcome to our podcast Bill Weinberg, an author, journalist, and podcast host of his own. Uh, the three of us are going to be discussing Noam Chomsky's views on the war in Ukraine, and in the context of Chomsky's wider uh take on U.S. foreign policy and international affairs and the famous Chomsky rule. So Bill Weinberg is an award-winning 30-year veteran journalist in the field of human rights, indigenous peoples, drug policy, ecology, and war, as well as a blogger, podcaster, and general raconteur. Also a veteran of many activist struggles, he considers himself a pragmatic and anti-dogmatic anarchist, uh, and Bill, your podcast is Counter Vortex, uh, that, that, and that's also the name of one of your websites. 
My flagship website yeah. and, and, and podcast are Counter Vortex, yes. And we will make sure we also link to your recent interview on this topic of Noam Chomsky. Or my, my recent rant, my recent podcast rant. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, Bill. So thank you for being here. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, welcome, Bill. You know, I'm, I'm Chomskying at the bit to do this episode. Ha, ha, ha. Bill, uh, your Counter Vortex rant podcast on Chomsky. At a certain point, you say, I've had it with Chomsky. But you've been on a dogged Chomsky watch for a long time now. You've been exposing and criticizing his actions and statements going way back. So what was it this time? What has he done lately that impelled you to make against Chomsky the topic and title of a whole episode of your podcast? Well, what particularly sparked it was uh, <clears throat> the latest sycophantic interview of the uh, with Chomsky of the kind we are regularly treated to on the left. It seems to be kind of a ritual every... Uh, you know, aspiring um, left-wing journalist has got to do a an interview with Chomsky as if he's, you know, the font of all wisdom. And don't throw him any hardballs or softballs. Don't ask him any challenging questions. Just treat him like some, uh, you know, revered oracle. And uh, this one was from a guy by the name of um, Nathan J. Robinson on Current Affairs website, inevitably on, on the topic of Ukraine. And I was just more appalled than usual and, you know, it's very strange. There seems to be this kind of convergence which has been growing in recent years between elements of the, you know, the so-called radical left or anti-imperialist left and elements of the uh, the paleocon right, the paleoconservative, uh, you know, so-called pragmatic right, as opposed to the neocons who are, um, who are very interventionist. You know, those like the old paleocons like Pat Buchanan and so on, who uh, were kind of like uh, isolationist. And uh, Chomsky was uh, was plugging uh, in the interview with him. He was plugging another interview, which was done by Chas Freeman, who was kind of like you know the great granddaddy of the of the Beltway paleocon right, who believes in you know quote unquote stability under authoritarian regimes, as opposed to you know that dreaded concept regime change, which the neocons were plugging now, going back a generation ago with the Iraq War. And uh, this interview with Chas Freeman was actually conducted by um, Aaron Mate of the Gray Zone, which uh, is organ of the of the pro Kremlin right of, of the pro Kremlin pseudo left, I would say, at this point. And Chomsky was essentially saying that uh, you know, citing what Freeman had said, saying that you know because um, Putin has got the nuke. We just have to, you know, essentially roll over and give him whatever he wants. And that particularly that, uh, you know, there has to be some kind of a negotiated settlement. And particularly that Crimea is, quote unquote, off the table. In other words, uh, that the, you know, the, the Russian annexation of Crimea is a fait accompli. And interestingly, this ca happened immediately after the, the Crimean Tartars, who were, you know, the, the Muslim and Turkic indigenous people of the Crimean Peninsula, who were forcibly relocated from their homeland into Siberia by Stalin in 1944 and were not allowed to return to their homeland in the Crimean Peninsula until the after the Soviet Union fell. And finally, at that point, with the independence of Ukraine, they were able to establish local autonomy and a degree of freedom and so on. And, uh, of course, that was all, you know, dramatically abrogated when, when Russia seized the Crimea in 2014. 
and their autonomous majlis, their autonomous parliament, which had been um, established and recognized as having, you know, local jurisdictional autonomy under Ukrainian rule, was dissolved under Russian rule, and their leaders have been, uh, you know, arrested and persecuted and locked up in psychiatric hospitals and so on. So now their uh, their majlis has been in exile in the diaspora cybernetically since it can no longer actually uh, you know meet in person in um, in the Crimea which is under Russian you know illegal annexation and you know just a few weeks back they had actually uh, the, in a in a cybernetic meeting of the Crimean Tartar Majlis they had issued a statement demanding that you know the first condition for any negotiations between uh, Russia and Ukraine to end the war has got to be a return of the Crimea of the Crimean Peninsula to you to Ukraine rule, and here is uh, you know without even mentioning any of this, without even acknowledging the existence of the Crimean Tartars, here is Chomsky you know lecturing to the Ukrainians that Crimea is off the table and that uh, you know the Russian annexation of the Crimean Peninsula is going to have to be accepted because Putin has got the nuke and he might use it if he gets too pissed off. So, uh, I mean, to my mind, this is wrong on so many levels. It is, a, you know, a, a capitulation to Russian neo-imperialism and, and expansionism and annexationism and, you know, Putin's attempts to rebuild the Russian empire. It's uh, legitimizing nuclear threats and incentivizing every, you know, would-be expansionist or imperialist out there who wants to annex territory and threaten his neighbors to, you know, get the nuke. <laughs> and, you know, incentivizing nuclear threats and, and, and having the nuclear warheads and missiles to back up the threats. And disincentivizing nuclear disarmament. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, there was something like 2,000 nuclear warheads which were left on... Um, on Ukraine's territory. And Ukraine actually gave them up. It became, uh, you know, one of the only countries on earth, I think but only Ukraine and South Africa, the only countries on earth, or also uh, at that same time, Kazakhstan and Belarus. So, uh, and, and it actually gave up the nuclear weapons which were on its territory in exchange under an actual, you know, codified agreement, which was signed by, by Russia and uh, the United States and Great Britain the so-called Budapest Memorandum of 1994, in which uh, it was agreed that there would be assurances for Ukraine's security, that its sovereignty and that its borders would be recognized, um, and that you know the world community would come to its aid if it was threatened. And that has been completely abrogated ever since 2014, when uh, you know when Putin seized the Crimea and seized uh, the uh, the Donbas region, and there have been you know just these weak token sanctions on Russia. Europe has been continuing to buy his hydrocarbons to the tune of billion dollars a day, funding his war machine ever since then. So, uh, you know, telling, uh, you know, Chomsky, the supposed anti-imperialist in Peacenik, telling the Ukrainians that they have to give up the Crimea, that it's off the table, not only incentivizing nuclear threats and nuclear stockpiling, it's disincentivizing nuclear disarmament. It's telling every country out there which has got nuclear weapons now, don't give up your nuclear weapons ever. It's a fatal mistake. You'll be overrun by your enemies. So, uh... This to me was just that uh, was just the last straw. I mean, uh, there are legitimate reasons to oppose a uh, you know a no-fly zone, which was something else Chomsky was speaking out against in that the interview. There, there's legitimate reasons to uh, oppose a no-fly zone. There are real risks involved in a no-fly zone, which should be acknowledged. 
But uh, there's also real risks in, in acquiescing to Putin's aggression. And we should acknowledge those risks as well. And certainly, just speaking for myself here, I absolutely think that there should be a complete economic embargo on Russia and that uh, there should be a complete cold turkey cutoff of all of its, uh, you know, all the uh, hydrocarbons that uh, particularly Europe, uh, you know, has been buying from Russia. It's absolutely criminal that uh, you know, the rest of the world is continuing to fund his war machine while he is, you know, escalating the genocide in Ukraine. There, that was another rant. Sorry. Well, it was a well-said rant. Um, I think regular listeners will recognize some common themes with things we've discussed in recent episodes about Ukraine. But, you know, one, one thing that amazes me about Chomsky's position is this naivete to, to think that Putin is going to uh, want or accept some kind of negotiated settlement where Ukraine is just neutral and Russia just gets some Ukrainian territory where, you know, Putin said at the very start of this invasion that he didn't believe in Ukrainian statehood and that he wanted the whole thing. Um, and there's, I've seen no evidence that the Russians are interested in some sort of negotiated settlement. So this naivete from Chomsky, where he just seems to blame the U.S. or the West for not trying to negotiate, I just don't understand how he can back that up. Right. I mean, I'll also point out, if I may, that uh, upon independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine declared its neutrality. So we should be examining how did new, how did Ukraine go from de- declaring its neutrality in, in 1991 to actually codifying in its constitution in 2019 its aspiration to join NATO. And that has something to do with all of the uh, threats and saber-rattling and um, subversion campaigns by, by Russia, really uh, going back almost 20 years ago with the, uh, the, the so-called Orange Revolution, whittling away at, at Ukraine's sovereign territory beginning in, uh, in 2014. That's how, how Ukraine went from abandoning its position of neutrality to actually codifying its aspiration to join NATO in its constitution. So, you know, rewarding this kind of Russian behavior is completely counterproductive to the cause of Ukrainian neutrality. Listeners will know that Bill is, not, is certainly not alone in his outrage over Chomsky's interventions and in Putin's war against the Ukrainian people. Uh, for one example, Artem Shapai, um, who has translated a lot of Chomsky's work into Ukrainian, um, has called out Chomsky in an open letter. Uh, this was early on in the war, well before the wholesale slaughter of civilians in Bukha and Maripol. Chomsky had described the lead up to Putin's invasion as follows. He said, quote, what happened in 2014 amounted to a coup with U.S. support that led Russia to annex Crimea, mainly to protect its sole warm water port and naval base. And Shapai responded, quote, when you're being bombed, when you're thinking of ways to evacuate your kids, you have a different perspective than when you're sitting cozy in an office somewhere in Arizona like Chomsky, he's insinuating. I beg you to listen to the local voices here on the ground, not some sages sitting at the center of global power. Please start your analysis with the suffering of millions of people rather than geopolitical chess moves. Start with the columns of refugees, people with their kids, their elders and their pets. Start with those kids in cancer hospitals in Kiev who are now in bomb shelters missing their chemotherapy. End quote. So I guess... I have two questions about this. First, about begging Chomsky to listen to the voices on the ground and to start his analysis with their concerns instead of with geopolitical chess moves. 
Um, isn't this like begging a leopard to change its spots? Could Chomsky possibly view the world in terms of the struggle between the rulers and the ruled instead of as a struggle between great powers? For instance, could he possibly begin to understand the war as the Putin regime versus the Ukrainian people, not Russia versus the U.S., without ceasing to be Noam Chomsky? Uh, well, you know, um, he's been uh, kind of a one-trick pony for a very, very, very long time. I mean, I'll give him credits for being uh, extremely prolific. He certainly gets out a lot of books, but they're kind of all saying the same thing over and over and over again. He's marshalling new uh, facts in defense of his point, but, uh, you know, his, his only point has ever been the U.S. is an imperialist monster and the, the Western media have a double standard which really is kind of obvious. I'm really not quite sure why that point needs to be hammered home again and again and again incessantly, you know, for how many years has it been since uh, the new Mandarins came out? Was it 1969? Yeah, and, and it's a point I think you said on your, your podcast rant, Bill, that's a point that you figured out on your own when you were a teenager, right? Yeah, I, I was still an adolescent when I figured that out, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's always good to have more um, factual ammunition at your disposal. And I give Chomsky credit for, uh, you know, uh, amassing an awful lot of it. But at a certain point, you have to go on to the next lesson. At a certain point, you have to start asking the next question. Uh, you know, fixating on this one point, you know, just leads you in ultimately into uh, a, ra a rather distorted view of reality because you you aren't getting a full picture of what's going on in the world if you're ex focusing exclusively on the evils of one imperial power, especially if we're going into, you know, a so-called multipolar world as, you know, we're all supposed to accept. Well, you know, fine. Uh, you know, I'm perfectly happy to see, uh, you know, the, the decline of the relative power of U.S. imperialism, absolutely. But, you know, accepting a multipolar world necessarily must entail a critique of the other poles, as opposed to, you know, continuing to maintain this very narrow, monomaniacal focus exclusively on, uh, you know, the evils of one pole, just because it happens to be the pole, so to speak, under which we live. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, the, 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 the to me, the core issue, okay? So Chomsky's making a point, it's not wrong, he makes it again and again and again and again and again, never getting to the next point, right? As you said, what is preventing him from getting to the next point? What is preventing him from not providing a distorted and one-sided view of the world? What is the basis for overcoming this kind of thing? I mean, I realize not with Noam Chomsky. He's too far gone. But other people listening to this might be experiencing certain blockages. And, you know, you, you say, don't go there. How do people avoid going down that Chomsky path? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> by listening to the people on the ground, certainly, as Artem Shapai uh, just exhorted us, Listen, actually listening to the voices on the ground, the voices of civil society and the grassroots in the countries we're talking about, rather than, you know, figures like Chas Freeman or Noam Chomsky, for that matter, you know, all these, you know, ex respected old farts, if you'll forgive me. So, um, 
And and in terms of, you know, the psychological dynamic, which may be at work here, we've all been so indoctrinated, perhaps uh, the current generation a little bit less than Chomsky's generation, but we've all been so indoctrinated in American exceptionalism and America stands for freedom. I don't even like to use the word America. I try to call it the United States because it's less evocative and it's more accurate. America stretches from Tierra del Fuego to the Yukon Territory. But, you know, we've all been so indoctrinated that, you know, the United States of America you know, stands for freedom and save the world from from the Nazis and from communism. And we're this uniquely predestined country to lead the world to freedom, blah, 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 blah. So we've all been so indoctrinated in that. And at a certain point, you realize that it's, you know, dangerous bullshit. And there's an, a, a certain natural tendency to just kind of flip it on its head and to view the United States as uniquely evil. And, you know, which in a certain sense it was back during the period of the unipolar world only because it was the biggest bully around. But increasingly, it's not the biggest bully around anymore. I mean, maybe it still is the biggest bully around, but certainly Russia is catching up very, very quickly, as is China for that matter. So um, it's actually, you know, a, a form of, you know, this, this nationalist indoctrination merely being, uh, you know, inverted in knee-jerk manner, rather than actually being transcended and overcome so that we can actually develop a more factually realistic view of the world to begin with, where the atrocities of Russia, or China for that matter, are not just merely excised out of our reality, but take them into consideration no less than those of the United States or Israel, in terms of our understanding of what the actual dynamics are on the, uh, on the world stage. And who we should be supporting in Ukraine, because it is not Russia, thank you very much. Or who we, should be, who, we, who we should be supporting in Xinjiang, for that matter. Yeah, and without this perspective of voices from below, of voices who are being oppressed, he's really stuck Where in this situation where he can't even accept criticism of Putin or Assad or you know, someone who isn't the U.S. or the West, um, because <clears throat> to do that, would be to like undermine his own position of of seeing the U.S. as the enemy. Um, so he gets stuck in this place where he feels like it would be like giving something up uh, uh, to his brand or to his position if he were to like just allow some criticism of other people. Yeah, I, I think that that is part of the, the the core. At some point, Noam Chomsky must have developed this view of international relations that styles itself as realism you know like Mearsheimer and, and other people um, who said really horrible things going way back you know way back in 2014 Mearsheimer was talking about neutralizing uh, Ukraine and giving uh, Crimea to Putin and all of this and the basic view of the world and he's come out with it again recently is look there are great powers, and if you are, you know, in the sphere of influence of a great power, well, tough luck. You don't count, and hey, that's just the way the world is. And when a right-winger tells me that's just the way the world is, I say, you know, go screw yourself. When a left-winger bows to that kind of view of the world, like this is the way the world is, I say, I don't like the way the world is. I didn't think you do either. But the moment you accept that, you're down the road of choosing between one great power that's imperialist and another great power that's imperialist. And what we've got to do is break from that servitude. And your mind is 
in servitude. Okay, you're, you're bowing to, to imperialism. You've got it, what a lot of people are beginning to see right now is, is it really is a colonialist mindset. It's, it's, it's a view that takes for granted colonialism, imperialism, and everything else and just says, well, that's the world we live in. Nothing can be done about it. For somebody who's supposedly the left of the left, it, it's a mind-bogglingly conservative position, it seems to me. Well, and secondly, I think I had said earlier, I had two questions. Secondly, how did Chomsky get like this? And, and why do so many others find it appealing? You know, after all, privileging actions of the rulers, even when it's just your analysis that privileges them, it puts the rulers in the front and center, and it doesn't really easily fit with anarchism, right? It's definitely antithetical to any genuine Marxism. Well, it's, it's absolutely antithetical to anarchism. <laughs> I mean, making excuses for, uh, for these dictators, but what's... What's particularly an expansionist and an imperialist like Putin, what's particularly slippery about it is that he always uses these escape clauses. Oh, I don't really support him, but... But then, you know, go on to completely echo the, the, the propaganda of these odious regimes. I'm going to point to uh, one thing I've been, uh, you know, harping about a lot on because it was another really egregious example going back to April 2017 with the Khan Shikun chemical attack in, um, in northern Syria, where Chomsky on Democracy Now! being interviewed by Amy Goodman uh, was, you know, hypothesizing about all of the, you know, the so-called false flag attack, the, the false flag theory, that the attack hadn't actually been carried out by the Assad regime. It had been carried out by the rebels as a provocation which is absolutely baseless and a betrayal of the of the victims of genocide on the ground in Syria and been utterly, utterly uh, repudiated by uh, the United Nations Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, as well as every bona fide human rights group, which has looked into the matter. And, you know, the only reason you can get away with saying this is because, you know, you're not really paying attention to what's going on in Syria. You don't know there have been literally hundreds of chemical attacks carried out in Syria over the course of the war. So, the, you know, the notion that the rebels have got a limitless supply of poisonous gas, but they only ever use it against themselves is absolutely implausible. So uh, in this interview, uh, but where, where he was airing all of these false flag theories, he's careful to say it's plausible that it was the Syrian government, quote unquote, that's a direct quote. And then, you know, he prefaces that with, you know, going on to say that it's actually not so obvious, again, quote unquote, not so obvious why the Assad regime would have carried out a chemical attack, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, later on, he characterizes the Assad regime as a murderous and brutal regime, quote unquote. But, uh, you know, but the entire, uh, you know, central point that he's arguing here is that they, the Assad regime did not use chemical weapons at Kanshikun, but that the rebels did it to their own people as a as a provocation. What's particularly dangerous about this is that unlike the really overt so-called tanky factions like we've got here in New York, like International Answer, which is literally marked with portraits of Bashar Assad. You know, Chomsky is using more of the, the soft sell slippery um, approach where, you know, he pays the lip service to the notion that the Assad regime is a, quote, murderous, brutal regime, end quote. Newbies who are listening to this on Democracy Now! will think to themselves, well, this guy isn't, you know, he's not all that bad. You know, he recognizes that Assad is a no good Nick. But then th that'll sort of be the, the sugar coating on the bitter pill 
of all of this conspiracy theory wackiness about how no, the chemical attacks are really all quote unquote false flag attacks. And he doesn't actually use that word. He doesn't actually use the term false flag attack, but it's it's entirely 100% the, the thrust of his argument. Yeah, I think uh, Deborah Lipstadt, the historian, you know, who's fought the Holocaust denial kind of successfully, uh, she has a really helpful category. She talks about the hardcore deniers those who say the Holocaust didn't happen. And then she says, but that's not all there is to denial. There's also the softcore deniers. And those are the ones who don't actually come out and say, you know, there was no Holocaust, but they minimize it. They engage in whataboutism and whatever. And her point is that aids the denialism. Uh, and I, I think of that is a really useful perspective when we try to understand the phenomenon of denial and, and so forth. What is it that people are saying and who is it helping and how is it helping? It's what they call, you know, entryism. Chomsky is kind of like uh, in some ways serving as the thin end of the wedge. People who are uh, just coming up now and, you know, have sort of been conditioned into treating Chomsky as this font of wisdom, hear his sort of soft sell approach and then he leads them to, uh, you know, Aaron Mate in the gray zone, who were like much more overtly shilling for the um, Assad dictatorship. I, I find it unbelievable to reconcile this great power-centered view of the world with anarchism, which is supposedly all about, you know, masses of people, you know, fighting on the ground. How does this come about? My little matchbox analysis is that, you know, it's it's inverted nationalism in thinking that you've actually overcome, you know, um, American patriotism and all of the uh, indoctrination that we've, you know, we got in elementary school and the Pledge of Allegiance and all that. <laughs> you haven't really overcome it. You've just flipped it upside down, where instead of the U.S. being, you know, uniquely good, the U.S. is uniquely evil, but it's still a completely U.S.-centric view of the world. It's still, you know, com completely viewing the world through the uh, prism exclusively of U.S. power. I call it imperial narcissism, where, you know, you, you think you've overcome U.S. Uh, imperialist indoctrination, but really you're still using it as the prism through which you view the world. If somebody really, if they're really concerned with the social revolution, ground up struggle, you know, resistance from the, the, the ground up, if, if that is really their perspective, uh, I, I guess you're you're right. They could think that they're they're fighting the ruling class by opposing the U.S. Uh, it looks to me like they're fighting one part of the ruling class in the service of another part of the ruling class. But. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas 
that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Uh, I want to read something from a listener to uh, our podcast, an anarcho-syndicalist in Canada, and he learned that we were going to be doing this episode, and he wrote to me, you should invite Chomsky and ask him what he thinks on the show. Well, I would love to have Chomsky uh, on the show and give him the time to say what he thinks. So that is the invitation to Chomsky, and we will convey it to him in, in person. Don't hold your breath. Right. In your recent podcast, Bill, your rant, uh, you showed in excruciating detail that Chomsky's statements about Putin's war against Ukraine are not like some one-off thing. And you've been talking somewhat about that thus far, you know, in our discussion today. And there's certainly not a temporary slip of the tongue. And I think it's fair to say that your view, Bill, is that Chomsky has been betraying common people and their struggles for a very long time? Yeah, well, I mean, I really first became aware of this tendency um, in all the controversies over um, Bosnia going back a generation now. Can, can you actually begin from the beginning, though? Give us, Can you give us the whole kind of like thumbnail sketch of, you know, what Chomsky's been doing since... He's been doing it. Well, I mean, the first time he got in trouble around this sort of thing was his denialism about the uh, the Pol Pot genocide in Cambodia in a piece that he ran in The Nation, and I believe it would have been uh, 1979 or thereabouts, with Edward Herman, who later on became even more of a you know an aggressive denialist around Bosnia. You could argue that you know things were not as clear in uh, 79 as they later would become after Pol Pot fell and the you know the killing fields were exhumed and i believe that uh, chomsky did actually kind of backpedal from the um, the skepticism that he raised back then but then you point out a generation later he's up to it again uh, with the war in bosnia 
again, you know, loaning credibility to all of this uh, revisionism about the Srebrenica massacre and so on. So he's kind of a, uh, you know, a serial offender here, and he hasn't been getting better over the years. He's been getting worse. So you, your view, the, the, the main instances are Chomsky on Cambodia, Chomsky on Bosnia, Chomsky on Syria, and now Chomsky in Ukraine. Those will be the big four. Yep. Andrew, you discovered a recent interview with Chomsky and Truth Out that you sent to us last week before when we were talking about doing this podcast with Bill. And it's called Chomsky, Our Priority on Ukraine Should Be Saving Lives, Not Punishing Russia. And in this conversation, Chomsky portrays himself as someone who has the interests of the Ukrainians at heart. He says that the war can end either by means of a negotiated diplomatic settlement, as he calls it, or by Russia obliterating Ukraine. He sort of poses that as the two options. And he says that, quote, no one who has the slightest concern for Ukrainians, end quote, wants to see it obliterated. But he suggests that respected voices in the mainstream, as he calls them, that want Ukraine to win the war, take take that position because they don't have this concern of Ukrainians in their minds, that their only concern is to punish Russia to the last Ukrainian. And it's a phrase he uses over and over again in the article. It keeps referring to the two sides as basically Putin, who he, this is obligatory genuflection and says Putin's bad. Uh, But then everyone else is just people who want to punish Russia at the expense of the Ukrainian people. So, you know, what do you, what do you think about this framing of of the issue? And, and, And also, is there anything else in the article that caught your attention? Well, I'm just going to briefly say that it's, you know, it's just disgusting to hear him, uh, you know, talking over the Ukrainians, you know, feigning concern for the Ukrainians while not actually listening to any Ukrainian voices whatsoever. I mean, that, that, that isn't how the Ukrainians are talking. Damn straight. I mean, he makes this like, this is the U.S., this is, these are the neocon warmongers, and, and they're, they're whipping this up as if the Ukrainians aren't valiantly, heroically fighting for their self-determination with blood. You know, who is at the forefront of the struggle? It's not Joe Biden. The forefront of the struggle, that's the, the Ukrainian people backing the, the Zelensky government. They're desperate. They're, they're calling for more arms. This idea that this is some scheme of the United States to push Ukraine and it, it just boggles the mind. There's there's not a shred of truth to this whatsoever. You know, and, and Chomsky says, oh, they want to fight to the, the last Ukrainian. You know, these warmongers, they want to punish Russia to the last Ukrainian. Noam Chomsky wants to sell out Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. But I'll tell you, I think another thing that was very interesting, you might want to expand on this, Brendan, is Chomsky is, he seems rather shaken or very defensive about his whataboutism. Yeah, I was going to bring up the whataboutism thing because multiple times in the article, he characterizes his argument as whataboutism, but in a way that sort of, sounds like he's trying to dis- preemptively dismiss the criticism of whataboutism, but he doesn't actually deal with the criticism. It's like he's just saying, I know people will say it's a logical fallacy, but I will say it anyway. As if just acknowledging the fact that you're committing a fallacy is all you have to do to defend yourself uh, when you make a logical fallacy. But it, it happens over and over again. He's like, people will say it's whataboutism, but let's talk about the U.S. and Vietnam. As if that has anything to do with the war in Ukraine right now. But it's like the only way he knows how to discuss anything and 
international affairs is to like default to listing bad things the U.S. has done throughout history. His framework can't even like break out of that sort of whataboutist way of discussing events. But I thought I thought it was very amusing that he kept acknowledging the problem, but then didn't actually address it at all. Yet he does something else that's kind of similar. It's like, as you mentioned, he says more than I think is typical from him, you know, saying Putin's a monster and, you know, his regime is horrible. And yeah, this is... Uh, but but he says, I, I, I'm going to say this, even though people in the global south who are outside the reach of U.S. propaganda, they're going to see this as terribly hypocritical on my part. Yeah, you know, he, he pulls that, yeah. He, for instance, those outside of the reach of the U.S. propaganda system will be appalled by the hypocrisy, but that's not reason not to welcome the highly selective exposure of war crimes. So he, he's calling out war crimes by the Russians, and it's like, okay, uh, that's really highly selective on my part to even say anything about it, and it, yeah, I mean, it's hypocritical, but, you know, what can we do? There's, and there's another element here. We kind of touched on it earlier uh, in, in, in this podcast. It's this presumption by Chomsky that the way to stop the killing, the way to save lives, is to capitulate to Putin or, you know, to negotiate with him somewhat on his terms. Or completely on his terms. You know, if you're yeah. saying that Crimea is off the table, in what sense it is, not, is it not on Putin's terms? Of course. And in your rant, Bill, you, you raised an interesting historical parallel to what happened prior to World War II. Yeah, well, Crimea smells an awful lot like Sudetenland to me. And for those of us who's almost everybody nowadays who does not remember that, uh, you want to spell that out a bit? Well, I mean, it was just the same basic strategy where Hitler grabbed the uh, Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia because it was primarily ethnically German and the people there supposedly wanted to unify with Germany anyway. And the international community, you know, Neville Chamberlain and that crew accepted this on the, the hopes that Hitler would be appeased. Well, gee, that worked out really great, didn't it? <laughs> so right. there's, a certain, there's a certain sense of deja vu to the whole thing, I would say. So Hitler really only wanted, you know, the Donbass region of Czechoslovakia because of his legitimate security concerns. And if we give him that, everything's going to be hunky-dory. That was the uh, deluded thinking at the time, yes, and it uh, didn't work out very well. Yeah, a few a few people have seen this. We had uh, Roni uh, Hensman uh, on the podcast, and she just said, "Look, appeasement doesn't work." And the whole history since 2014 up to the present in Ukraine shows us that appeasing Putin hasn't worked and isn't going to work. And it's kind of strange that at this moment, after what eight years of appeasement, we're being told the solution is appeasement. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to reiterate again, lest I be accused of warmongering, that, you know, I certainly think that, um, you know, direct military conflict between Russia and NATO is something which needs to be avoided, without a doubt. But I also think that just putting on my, uh, which I don't usually do, but putting on my, you know, policymaking hat just for a moment, just, you know, lest somebody call me out on it, I th absolutely think that there needs to be a, um, a complete 100% cold turkey economic embargo of Russia. And I think that in demanding this, we should also be demanding 
the necessary social interventions, that, that the cost for this, which is going to be real, is not going to be borne by the working class in the West and around the world. It needs to be a general crash conversion from fossil fuels. In any case, not just Russian fossil fuels, but all fossil fuels is mandated for other reasons than undercutting Putin's war machine. But certainly the necessity of undercutting Putin's war machine has added a great deal of urgency to the whole question. So I 100% absolutely support that. And as for the question of military resistance, I'm certainly not going to uh, tell the Ukrainians not to fight. I 100% support the, the right to armed self-defense. And, and the Ukrainians are fighting for their national survival now, nothing less, and perhaps their physical survival, because certainly Putin appears to be escalating to genocide. And the, and the, the recent rhetoric to come out of um, the Kremlin and uh, you know, Russian state media is ex increasing, you know, very much uh, you know, exterminationist, calling for the quote-unquote annihilation of Ukraine and so on. I mean, it's, it's quite frightening. Oh, it's it's horrible. That I, I don't remember the, na the name of that person who p published that piece. Supposedly not an official voice, but it was it was downright exterminationist. You know, that was several weeks ago. I mean, he was saying, "Gee, we were trying to eliminate the Nazis, but now it looks like the whole Ukrainian people—they're Nazis." So the denazification campaign has got to be a lot broader, you know, and reach down into the. The, the common people. I mean, several such statements now, which have emerged from uh, Russian state media sources, Ria Novosti and RT and Sputnik and so on, with rhetoric to that effect. Wow. Yeah. Look, when when, when you're killing that many people, you know, and you look at the slaughter in Mariupol, and you've also said, and you've said even uh, you know a couple of days before the, the the war began, there is no such thing as a distinct Ukrainian people. You know, these are really Russian people, they're Christians, they're 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 they're, they're us. When you, you put those two things together, that is saying you're trying to eliminate this distinct nation, and you're killing people for the sake of that, eliminating their separate identity, and that 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 is. That is genocide. Well, Andrew, I know you wanted to say some things about the so-called Chomsky rule. So why don't you lay that out for us now that we can discuss? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it rather briefly. And I want to uh, just like emphasize what I'm trying to do here. Okay. Bill, toward the end of your podcast on Chomsky, you say that all of Chomsky's errors, as you charitably labeled them, uh, quote, can be traced back to the analytical and ultimately the moral and intellectual distortions of the so-called Chomsky rule. And you referenced that at the beginning of the discussion today. I agree with you, actually, about the importance of the so-called Chomsky rule in the whole scheme of things. Uh, and it's so important that I'd like us to discuss it at some length here. But first, I want to analyze it a bit. And the reason I want to analyze it is because I think that Chomsky's reasoning is extremely dicey and in fact, so dicey that I doubt that many of Chomsky's fans think the Chomsky rule is a good argument. They can say they like the Chomsky rule, but I don't think it's because of the quality of the arguments. So I want to analyze it, not because I think that by analyzing it, we're going to turn people away from the Chomsky rule, but in order that we can open up a real discussion of the real basis of appeal of the Chomsky rule. What I'm trying to say is this. If his reasoning is as questionable as I think it is, then the actual reasons he and his devotees embrace the rule probably has very little to do with the nuts and bolts of the arguments. And it's more likely that people embrace the Chomsky rule for other reasons, and in that the rule serves other purposes rather than 
sound ethical justification. So what I want to do is ultimately to get to the real bases for the appeal of the Chomsky rule without being distracted by the dicey argumentation that it gets wrapped up in. First let me read the canonical version of the rule which was published first in a 1986 book of Chomsky's. Uh, he said, my own concern is primarily the terror and violence carried out by my own state for two reasons. For one thing, because it happens to be the larger component of international violence, but also for a much more important reason than that. Namely, we can do something about it. So even if the U.S. was responsible for 2% of the violence in the world instead of the majority of it, it would be that 2% I would be primarily responsible for. And that is a simple ethical judgment. That is, the ethical value of one's actions depends on their anticipated and predictable consequences." End quote. Okay, here's my analysis. Uh, first of all, Chomsky's making two distinct arguments. One's this larger components argument. Chomsky says he's right to be primarily concerned with terror and violence of the U.S. state because that's the larger component. Uh, that's a factual claim. Question, is it factually correct? Is there some way to measure the largeness and smallness of terror and violence? And if you have a way, is that the only correct way to measure it? Also, Chomsky is implicitly claiming that we should be most concerned with who does the most violence, the larger component. Why? Should that be our major concern in every context? What if, for instance, the violence here and now is coming from elsewhere? Shouldn't we be concerned with what's here and now? Uh, okay, Chomsky's other argument is this do something about argument. He says that he's right to be primarily concerned with the actions of the U.S. because we should be concerned about things we can do something about. This is like we, we, we all the way home. We has a very narrow meaning here. It refers to the citizens or residents of a country and to nothing else. Only by defining we in that way, can you get to the conclusion that Chomsky should be primarily concerned about the actions of the U.S., which he calls my own state. But why should we be understood in this nationalist way? Why is place of residence or national identity the only basis for deciding who we are? You know, instead of like the progressive people around the world as we, right? Okay, now, despite what Chomsky says, this do-something-about-argument is not a, just a simple ethical judgment. His claim that we should primarily be concerned with the actions of our own state because we can do something about them, that's an implicit factual claim. That we cannot do anything about the actions of foreign states and non-state actors. Is that factually correct? Always? He goes on to claim that we are primarily responsible for the actions of our own state. Why? As he makes clear, the basis for that conclusion is this factual claim that we can't do anything about actions of foreign states and non-state actors, that implicit claim. And now, if that's not correct, then Chomsky is left with no justification for his conclusion about what we're primarily responsible for. If we can do something about foreign states, etc., then we've got responsibility for that. So is there some other justification? Chomsky doesn't give one. If so, 
Is there one? What is it? Okay, so finally Chomsky says, uh, the ethical value of one's actions depends on their anticipated and predictable consequences. And he suggests that this is a sum up of his whole do something about argument. Uh, I don't think it sums it up. It leaves out the nation-centered nationalistic elements of the do something about argument. And it's also introducing something additional. The claim that what makes an action ethical or unethical are its, quote, anticipated and predictable consequences. Nothing else matters, like whether the action adheres to an ethical or political principle. Okay, now that's just a claim that, you know, he can make, but it's clearly debatable. Uh, in part, it's debatable because we often can't accurately anticipate or predict all of the consequences of our actions. Okay, as I see it, that's the reasoning involved in the Chomsky rule. As best as I can make out, uh, and as I said, I think this reasoning is so dicey that the people who embrace it don't do so because they think that these arguments provide sound ethical justification. It likely appeals to them for other reasons uh, and for other purposes it serves. Uh, and what I hope we can do is turn our attention uh, to those things. So does anybody <laughs> uh, have, have any thoughts about why this Chomsky rule has made it big and people discuss it and, 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 and take it so seriously. What is really driving people? Because there's a, there's a kernel of truth to it. Okay. Which, uh, and, you know, all, uh, you know, powerful propaganda has got to have a certain element of truth. But to both pillars of the argument here, first, you know, the larger components argument. When Chomsky first started making uh, this argument back in 1969, there was some truth that, you know, the U.S. was by far the larger component of global violence at, at that time, at the height of the, of the war in Vietnam. Perhaps there was still some truth to it in 1986, when the statement that you quoted was made. But there definitely is not truth to it in 2022, when we're in this multipolar world, and, uh, you know, Aleppo and now Mariupol have been destroyed by Russian warplanes, okay? It's not true anymore. It might have been true in 1969, it might have been true in 1986, but it's not true in 2022, okay? It's a multipolar world, and the U.S. has got plenty of competition in terms of, uh, you know, being the larger component of global violence. And again, you know, failing to see that is where, you know, that, that, that's a part of the intellectual pathology that this, uh, you know, so-called Chomsky rule, that you're only supposed to criticize U.S. imperialism, you know, it's a part of where it leads to a distorted view of the world. If you can't criticize and you can't talk about any other, you know, crimes being committed by any other actor on the world stage, then, you know, it's like out of sight, out of mind. It's like it's not happening. It's, you know, it's like, it's like the, the destruction of Aleppo didn't happen. Destruction of Mariupol didn't happen. The, uh, the second point of his argument here is, you know, I agree that our first responsibility is to protest crimes which are committed in our name and with our tax dollars. But it's not our only responsibility. You know, we have responsibilities as human beings and inhabitants of planet Earth, not merely as Americans. And the notion, for instance, that Putin doesn't care about international opinion uh, immediately raises the question of why he expends so much money and effort in trying to shape it through organs such as RT and Sputnik. Of course, we have the ability to bring pressures beyond the borders of the country that we live in, and especially in the world of the Internet and globalization and social media. So, you know, that too, you know, it's an argument that's got a certain kernel of truth, but um, it's outdated. It's not as true as it used to be. 
And, you know, just the seizing on that one kernel of truth is, you know, the, again, the only point that you're allowed to make view, leads to uh, ultimately to a distorted view of reality. Well, I can certainly see the Chomsky rule appealing to people who just um, find comfort in like a more simplistic view of the world and um, comfort in being able to just return to like the same explanation for everything. Um, and just kind of slot things into a simplistic framework. It definitely works well for Chomsky's branding, right? I mean, like consistent branding is just like hitting the same points over and over again um, and getting really good at those one or two points. That's And that's kind of what he does well. But Andrew, I think you made a good case for explaining how the Chomsky rule has so many holes in it that it's hard to imagine that it just is like sustained itself by the, its intellectual integrity or sophistication. I mean, just this this notion of only having responsibility f- to the extent that one can change something. I could see that being a justification for like an extremely localistic view of politics. You could say like, well, I, I can't really do much to change politics in American society. You know, I, I can't really change the Democratic Party or fascism or the Senate filibuster or any of these problems. So I'm just going to like do things I can do, like pick up trash on my street. Um, and again, there are people who make those kind of arguments, right? But like, you're not going to have a philosophy of social change and revolution with that sort of perspective. Right. I mean, I, 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 I'm less taken with the Chomsky rule than Bill is. I, I, I don't happen to, I, I kind of accept the larger component argument circa 1969, although I, I don't really know how you measure larger and smaller. But th- this idea that, you know, primarily responsible for your actions in your own country, I, 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 don't, I don't see it that way. Here's what I think the actual kernel of truth is. Where you should put your activity is where it's going to be most effective. The underlying kernel of truth to the whole thing is, you know, don't be tilting at windmills, do what can be effective. And I, I agree with that. But, you know, to, to continue with what you're saying, uh, Brendan, for me, I'm not going to be able to influence, you know, certainly by myself, I'm not going to be able to influence U.S. foreign policy. Where I think that I can be most effective is by, you know, calling out these tendencies in the left that are impeding the left from being a force for freedom and human rights for everybody, you know? And so that's what MHI does. Uh, that's what uh, we, do, we do in this podcast. That, that uh, That's what I do, is we think that we are well-positioned and nobody else is doing it, or very few people are doing it. This is what we have to do. This is where we can be most effective, is fighting the retrogressive tendencies within the left. So, yes... Do, do what's most effective, but the idea that it's always breaking down on terms of this nation, that's your nation and not, I mean, what, people did not have a primary responsibility to come to the defense of the Spanish Republic when uh, the Falangists, when Franco were, 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 were taking it over prior to World War II? No. People said, we're internationalists. We're for freedom. We're fighting fascism. We're fighting phalangism. And what did they do? They picked up, they left the United States, and they, they, they went to aid the Spanish Republic. That boggles my mind that in light of that experience, you could now have somebody who says he, he's an anarchist, and uh, that Barcelona in, uh, at that period, that, that's the model for him, that, that, that he could make this kind of argument, Chomsky. You know, you've got to be concerned just about my own nation. But I'll tell you, I, 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 I think that not to, to, to disagree, I, I agree with what, what you guys say, 
But you know how people talk about making a virtue out of necessity? I think that the real shtick of the Chomsky rule is making a virtue out of vice. I think people who are like this know that they're being one-sided. I think they realize the hypocrisy in what they're doing by just calling out one side, and they want to cover. And this kind of facile argumentation provides a cover. That does sort of leave open the question of what their actual motives are. And again, I would look to, uh, ironically, patriotic indoctrination. You know, they've been so completely shaped by you know, all of the American exceptionalism that we've been fed all of our life that they've, you know, completely internalized it. And rather than being able to take a, you know, a realistic view of what the actual juxtaposition of global forces are, you know, everything has got to be about the United States. Only instead of viewing it as uniquely good, it's uniquely evil. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. What they're for is, is some sort of campism, and it's because of this kind of knee-jerk flipping to the other side of the coin. And I, I don't think the Chomsky rule makes them like this. I, I think it provides a cover for what people really deep down understand is hypocrisy. I think they understand it all too well. <laughs> On the subject of giving some attention to actual Ukrainian voices, I would just like to, uh, in addition to plugging my own website, countervortex.org, where I rant obsessively about such matters, I uh, urge people to check out the uh, website of the Ukrainian socialist group. They call themselves Social Movement. They've got a very interesting uh, website, which has run some very forthright statements about, you know, they've been very critical of Zelensky. And his whole program of, you know, desocialization and privatization and so on. You know, they were opposing Zelensky from the left, but now they're opposing Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. Thank you very much. So I urge people to check them out. They're online at rev, as in revolution, rev.org.ua for Ukraine. rev.org.ua for Ukraine. Check out the uh, website of Ukraine's social movement online. Ren, you know, I would just urge people to start looking, uh, you know, to socialist and anarchist voices from Ukraine and Eastern Europe and Syria and so on, as opposed to um, Noam Chomsky and Chas Freeman and John Mearsheimer and all of these other uh, Western talking heads, including me. <laughs> great. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Free Humanity. It's been great to have you. I think it's been a great discussion. Well, thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to blow off some steam. Yes, thank you so much. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. Thank you.